Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Thank you, Mr. Intro Man again. Here we are again, Mark, with myself, Brendan. And Mark, you've been on holiday in Fiji, I think. So I think the first thing we need to do is get some information about your trip and what you did and um, did you relax and what did you see? Lots of wildlife. I did. I had a great time away. I um, uh, travelled over to Tavuni, the third largest island in the Fiji group, um, and uh, stayed at the um, Nakia Eco Resort, um, which is associated with Tavuni Ocean Sports, with whom we dived literally every every day um, out on the, uh, the the popularly named Rainbow Reef, the in the Somo Somo Straits, um, and. Crazy! It's just gorgeous. The the that part of the world, the reef is um, complex. It has huge biodiversity. Um, we get got to see um, uh, hawksbill turtles. We got to see many reef sharks. Um, the blue ribbon eel is in the wild. It's one of the only locations you can find these animals in the wild. Um, large numbers of nudibranchs and soft corals. It was just excellent. And in between the dives, I was um, up in the rainforest in the on the eastern side of um, Tavuni at uh, um, uh, near a village called Boma and uh, wandering in the rainforest there, there's um, a couple of types of uh, endemic species um, and I did manage to get some... Uh, Pretty ordinary photographs of the uh, of the silk tail, a little rainforest insect passerine, insect eating passerine. So I had a great time. It sounds like you were quite busy. So was there any sort of downtime there, sitting by the pool, sipping a little um, a little drink with a with, with a little stick in it, that sort of thing? No one look, and I was saying to you off air that one of the the um, the problems I probably have with these holidays, and and uh, um, and I can't blame anyone but myself, is that um, that I, I fill them up with as you know I, I go to these places and and uh, enjoy them so much and feel that uh, the travel is so valuable that I can't bring myself to take an afternoon of just sitting by the pool with a uh, a cocktail with a, an umbrella in it. I've got to. You know, so how many times do you go to a place where you can uh, find silk tails in the rainforest just a yes. short walk away? <laughs> so, you, so you've got to go and find them. Well, maybe you should take the cocktail with you, Mark, um, <laughs> as you walk into that rainforest just a few metres away from where you are staying. I'll put a post to the um, to the um, Nike Resort and Dive Fiji. I presume that is the um, that is the place um, that you stayed at. I'll put that in the show notes. And for those of you who are new listeners to our podcast you can get all the show notes and all the links to all the reviews we do and all the um, articles that we read in our news items at vetgurus.com and um yeah there's there's one other other thing i've got to tell you about tavuni um in the rainforests they you know in in uh, christmas island they have those red crabs that wander in large numbers across the the country they have um purple forest crabs 
in Tavuni. They are bright purple with white spots, and they are the most belligerent crabs. Like, you're walking along the forest, these crabs behave like gatekeepers. They wander out with both claws up going, thou shalt not pass. So I'll send you a, I'll send you a picture of me paying my... Uh, passing my uh, my passage to one of these crabs so that I can go on further and look for the doves and and uh, and silk tails that uh, were the object of my you know poor photographic skills excellent well I'll, I'll, I will post that on our um, on our website and that can that that picture can be on there if it's okay with you yeah um, we'll, perfect we'll pop that on there well while you've been out um, relaxing and, and having all those cocktails and diving every day I hope you didn't get the bends um, and I hope you're careful with your dives how far down were, were the dives only a few meters I presume yeah the deepest one was uh, I think we get down to 27 meters is about our limit and uh, we do have to do our three minutes at five meters safety stop on every dive um, but um, yeah no 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 particular problems uh, with the diving. Um, I often have, where we do intense diving on holidays like that, I often get a bit of a clicky ear, but even that didn't happen. So all good. Great. Fantastic. Well, while you were doing that, the rest of us were slaving away, Mark. I tell you what, I've had my week this week and last week has been quite interesting. So this is the weekend in February the 16th. 2018 um had some really interesting cases i just i just spent um today wrestling with a um laxated hip in a in a rabbit i don't know whether you've had many of them mark but they're a bit of a bit of a pain to get back in and i'd um i, I thought i'd pop it was a dorsocranial luxation of the hip in a rabbit it just jumped out of the owner's arms um and luxated its hip no no fracture there and um that was about a week um before I saw it and then I had it in today which was probably another five days um, after that week so a good you know 10 to 14 days since it was done so there's a fair bit of muscle contracture there as well and it was very difficult so we bombed it out and we um, well I have <laughs> and we um, anaesthetized it and um, confirmed the luxation on the radiographs and then I spent a very sweaty 30 minutes trying to pop this um hip back in place and repeating my radiographs because I thought, gee, it feels like it's popped in again. And um, I think I ended up taking about 15 or 16 shots of the hip of this um, rabbit. And then I'd basically given up and I'd um, turned off the anesthetic machine and was about to reverse um, the other meds I'd given it. And um, I just grabbed the leg again and it popped in just as I was about to wake it up. Um, I then, can't believe that. And then took a final radiograph and um, it's all good. So it's gone home today. So that was my um, fun one today. So it was actually an interesting couple of days. And the other interesting case yesterday was a um, a fibrous osteodystrophy in a guinea pig. And um, I don't know, I'd, I'd be interested to see whether you've seen any of these. Um, so a really painful condition of guinea pigs. It's probably something we'll cover again in a, in a future podcast. Um, so bone pain, we think, and it was referred for a dental problem and often they get secondary dental disease and mouth problems and struggle to eat and um, worked it up as a dental case but then realised with the radiographs that I had there that it had the fibrous osteodystrophy and... Um, 
did um, send it home yesterday with, with high doses of um, analgesia and to see how he'd go, but um, he was he was dropped back in today for euthanasia. Have you seen many of that those um, that condition? Mark? Only occasional ones, Brendan. They're, they're, um, uh, they they've been not good cases to deal with in my experience. So it um, doesn't it surprise me that you've unfortunately had to deal with. Uh, the um the final stages of that uh, guinea pig because they where we've I think we've had a couple of those cases and they've they've just been not good. Yeah, I've, I've, I think I did have one that that plugged away for I think six months or so on 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 palliative care on pain relief and appeared to be reasonably comfortable before it ended up having to be euthanized. But yeah, it's not a. Not a not a good condition. I think we don't know the whole story. Whether we did, I did full bloods on it. Bloods came back today as well, and a massive um, phosphorus level and um, inverse calcium phosphorus ratio. Um, the, the the renal f- function, um, the creatinine and urea were normal. Um, and um, there's some thought that it's all related to parathyroid conditions with them. Um, but it's also, I, I think, there's a recessive gene with silkies. Um, um, with a particular breed of guinea pig, but it's probably something we should discuss when we talk about genetic issues in in small mammals, which will be a good future podcast episode, won't it, Mark? Um, so that's been my week, some challenging cases, and um, actually there's another, yeah, I, I, remind me to talk about another guinea pig case um, next week if um, if it's still alive um, that had major surgery yesterday, but I was quite... Um, quite um happy with the surgery that i did yesterday i was going to give up on this particular case but i just plugged away and plugged a light way and um, um managed to um, remove this huge um, mass from this guinea pig but we'll might talk about that next week because i think we should get on to our news mark um and um most of the news cases this week, surprise, surprise, are, are bird-related ones so you'll be happy with that <laughs> and um i'm actually quite um um interested with um all of these um news stories um and i think i've picked a couple of um bird um news items as well so it's a bird theme and the first one is from you and i think it's about an ecologist who um gets out there and feeds birds or something it was um, one of the uh um the one of the websites that I like to um, spend a bit of time around is the um, the ABC's Wild Oz, which is a relatively recent. Um, uh, I don't know, is it a channel or hashtag? It's a hashtag. The young people will know what that means. Yes. <laughs> hashtag ABC Wild Oz. Anyway, the um, the the. One of the stories on it recently has been um, a gentleman, uh, um, Professor Daryl Jones, who's at Griffith University, um, and he um, he is a specialist in urban ecology, and uh, um, and he's widely published on a a number of aspects of um, of uh, how living in the suburbs affects wildlife. Um, and for a long time he was um, he subscribed to the Mark Simpson School of Don't Feed Wild Birds in Your Garden. Um, he was a fairly uh, devout um, uh, um, Don't Feed Wild Birds advocate. Um, but just over the last little bit he's changed. And uh, in this whole article in, um, in, in the ABC Wild Oz, Talks about his conversion to uh, to someone who feeds birds, and um, and I, I 
got to say that it, uh, you know, in the way of me standing on my soapbox all the time and and uh, um, and not on the fence, um, I'm disappointed, Brendan. Disappointed, yes. and a little bit angry um, that uh, that um, you know people um, people who I think should maybe know better um, who don't you know who let people off the hook. I suppose, um, in feeding the birds himself and then uh, promoting it as a reasonable thing for people to do, provided they um, are clean, that they only provide snacks and not full meals, um, that they never feed birds away from home, only stations at home, and that they enjoy it because you must realise that you're feeding the birds for yourself, not for their benefit. Yes. Um, and the distressing thing for me, and I'd, I'd be interested in your opinion, um, is that I would reckon that maybe 30 or 40 times over the last six months, um, I've had uh, young birds of a variety of species come in with, um, with uh, some form of illness associated with um, at least associated with uh, the fact their parents were um, supplementary fed in the wild. Um, and, and geez, it, I, I struggle to justify this. It's very popular. It's a, a billion-dollar industry in Europe and North America, the um, home bird feeding industry, um, and it's a rapidly growing thing. Nearly 30% of the uh, Australian population in a recent survey uh, uh, admitted to spending money every week on items for wild birds in their garden. Yes. So it's a significant thing, but, geez, I wish people wouldn't do it, Brendan. I just wish they wouldn't do it. I, I Look, I may sound like a stick in the mud who just has his opinions and is not prepared to change, but I hereby announce that I'm going to communicate with Professor Jones. I'm going to email him. Uh, he is publishing a book. I tried to buy it, but it isn't um, available yet, and I'll, I'll obviously do a review of that book when I get it. Um, his book is called... Uh, it's called... Birds, the birds at my table, why we feed wild birds and why it matters. Um, and so uh, I'll, once that uh, book is more freely available in a month or so, I will uh, read it and review it. But in the meantime, I will undertake to correspond with Professor Jones and uh, maybe see if I can convince him that his opinion needs to change. Maybe he'll convince me that I, my opinion needs to change. Anyway, I was just flicking through the article while um, while you were talking there, Mark. Here, and I think it, I mean the one thing it doesn't really talk about much is the types of food he puts in there. Because when you look at those thing that really annoys me, you go into the supermarkets and you see the the wild bird seed um, that's that's um, there to you know that's really cheap to purchase, and I think a lot of people buy it um, to put out for feeding the wild birds, and it's full of the sunflower seeds and all the sorts of things we don't want to feed them. And his one of his main comments in the article that he keeps repeating there is saying the most important thing is just clean the feeder with a little bit of vinegar or something um, is 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 um, the main thing to try and um, disinfect it, I suppose, yeah. Um, but, yeah, uh, it's difficult. I, I, I think 
I think um, what we need is, and I think you need to um, mention that to him um, if you are contacting him, um, see if you can pull up some nice studies um, showing that um, feeding the wild birds um, is detrimental to them. Um, And apart from just having, you know, the anecdotal um, information that probably all a lot of vet clinics have, including your, yourself and and me, um, with with birds that have been brought into clinics at times that um, that are on poor nutrition um, from their their parents. Yeah, like you mentioned, being fed the the um, the diets that are just put out there, those seeds and all those horrible things. Um, it's, I think it's balancing that against. Um, as I was reading through it, through it, I can see his point that maybe he's talking about the connect with nature bit. That um, connection, yep. yeah. That that that, that and I can and I do like that to to promote that 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 we need to um, promote people getting out there and seeing animals or at least appreciating them. And the only way you can appreciate a lot of, if not all animals, is to actually see them in the flesh um, or in the feathers um, for the birds. Um, so um, feeding them feeding those wild ones potentially can do that um but yes having said that i don't agree with it yes like you um so um i will wait with bated breath mark for your review of his book and i will we will see what you will give it out of 10 uh, at this stage i think it may end up being below five and yet normally pretty generous um pretty generous um marker with these um with these reviews, um, I'll be quite interested with, as, with as, much, as we shall see. Yes. <laughs> um, with you coming up shortly, dear listeners, um, of a particular um, um, book that um, we have a little bit of a vested interest in. So let's jump onto the news story number two, which is one I um, found which I quite liked. Um, before we get on to our main topic um, for the week, and that is. Um, well, the subheading of this, and this is from the Mother Nature Network, as, as, as regular listeners and subscribers will know, it's one of our favourite sort of sites for quirky stories. And um, the subheading is, why didn't someone think of this before? And a recent study found that 90% of seabirds have eaten plastic. So it's a, the issue of the plastics and birds. Um, so here's a bird theme, but not just birds, um, but also any marine creatures in the marine environment um, that can ingest plastic. And Saltwater Brewery in Florida has created, Mark, listen to this, a six-pack ring that feeds animals instead of killing them. So the edible six-pack um, many six-pack rings from beer end up in the ocean. Well, not just the beer, beer six-packs, but also the um, the other um, um, six-packs that hold other other sort of fizzy drinks and that. So, um, and these are those little plastic, normally um, 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 apparatus on the top of the six-pack that that allows you to carry that six-pack home and put it in your car and then in, in your fridge. So they've developed a six-pack that's um, biodegradable and edible and compostable um, and doesn't harm birds or any sea life that ha- um, happens to um, contact it. And it's also strong enough to handle the weight of a six-pack to carry it, which is the most important thing as well. And um, they talk about further on in the article that um, it costs more um, than a normal six-pack, but they've incorporated into the price of their six-pack, and it's only for one particular um 
brew that they do, which is Saltwater Brewery's Screaming Reels IPA. Um, so for those of you um, in Florida, um, you can potentially go out and get this night and feel good about um, drinking your six-pack and feel even better that if you throw that six-pack ring in the ocean that potentially it will biodegrade or if the animals eat it, they won't get sick from it. So I think that was quite a quirky little um, quirky little um, um Article there, and um, I remember all, all, all zoo vets at some time or another have have seen animals that have been brought into the zoo with with all sorts of plastic wrapped around them externally, um, not just birds but marine animals, but also animals that are foraging in in um, well in bush bush areas and picnic areas um, where people just throw all their rubbish around and and birds and other other creatures will pick them up um, or they end up ingesting them and you open up the um, intestinal tract of these animals and they're just full of plastic so it's pretty nasty sort of stuff so there we go so there's no reason to stop drinking your beer mark um, if you get something that has these biodegradable plastic um, little six packs on them so i quite like that one um and the next um, item um, I found um, very, very amusing and and beautifully written and, and some amazing pictures with it. And it's um, another one about the bird's br- bird brains, isn't it, Mark? I think you're going to talk about this particular one and some fantastic photos in there. The, um, that well, photograph. We were. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. You were going to talk about the photograph of the um, the uh, uh, um, goshawk. That and also, yeah, yes, um, a few of the photographs, there, the photos there, and the other one of the um, the um, the gifts of the uh, yes. the, the crow um, that the crows that befriended this um, person, and 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 they brought in all these um, bright looking um, bits of bits of plastic and and um, all sorts of stuff um, that they. Um, Brought back to the human to to um, to say, look what I've I've brought you. They must have fallen in love with their little human um, caregiver. But I bet you that person was putting out seeds for, for them, <laughs> and that's why. But anyway, well, and, and look, you are, you are completely correct. Uh, the young Gabby, who um, who is the object of the the gift giving by the the um, the crows, and so this you've you've already highlighted this Nat, Nat Geo. Article and I'm, I'm just jumping around everywhere, but I love the set out as well. Uh, um, I'm, I'm developing a little bit of taste for how web pages are set out, and um, this one in particular, the particular, really grabbed my, um, you know, uh, interest aesthetically. I really love the way the photographs are. Often photographs draw away from the um, the text, but this one adds to it nicely, and I really like it. Um, but it's a very, very long article, and I propose only to just discuss a couple of important points. And Gabby is one of them. Gabby uh, um, keeps getting; she puts out food for the um, for the crows, and um, and it would appear in return that the birds. Um, give her gifts. They find things um, and give her things. And these things range from um, uh, buttons to coins to um, uh, um, uh, plastic squid. Um, 
a whole bunch of uh, jewellery, uh, little uh, plastic hearts from um, uh, necklaces. Um, and it's just fascinating to think what is going on in the brains of these birds. Are they, um, why are they doing, why are they performing this behaviour? Why are they giving young Gabby Man um, in Seattle um, the, the, um, the, these these items are they? Is it really an, an analog of a thank you? Is it a thing that um, that the birds realise that if they can draw her attention to them more consistently, that she'll she will go and put the uh, the food she was putting out soaked dog biscuits and some nuts into a specific bird feeder, one of those expensive bird feeders that are sold in the US. Um, and she, I think it would be safe to say that she did it more frequently when she had more attention from the birds. So it's, it's, I think this is a good example of they are complex animals with very, very uh, complicated neural networks, which, um, which, you know, lead to complicated behaviour. Um, but it's easy for us to think that they're, um, they're generous in saying thank you when I think it's much more likely that they're self-interested and just trying to perform a behaviour that might draw additional attention to them. And, geez, the sort of things I would give them Bloody, I would break my rule and put some food out if I was given gold beads, pearl earrings, screws, nuts, bolts, red Lego pieces, coloured and clear glass chips, chicken bones, pebbles, quartz crystals, and dead sticklebacks. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that just amazing? What do you think, Brendan? I, yeah, I... I Yes, bird brains is what is is what the article talks about, and there's a fan just it is a very long article. I'm just scrolling down, and there's a beautiful graphic of of bird brain power, and it talks about um, which particular birds have um, a greater percentage of the forebrain as a portion of the total brain, um, and they're the ones that they're thinking that, that can perform these sort of more complex. Um, tasks um and the common raven is high up there with um four brain 80 percent um down the other end um surprise surprise is the common pigeon and the chicken um, um so the ones with the um more evolved or, or more active forebrain are the ones that are better at doing puzzle solving and utilizing tools and, and those sorts of things but there's some amazing little Stories in this. Um, just, I was just looking at another one. There's a pretty scary picture of a guy with a mask on there. Um, about, <laughs> um, and um, it looks a bit like you, Mark, when we were in Venice um, last year. It reminded <laughs> me of Venice. It reminded um, me of Venice. And um, the caption with that one is recognizing faces. In 2006, a wildlife biologist, John Marsluff, and one of his students at the University of Washington in Seattle donned masks like this and captured and banded seven crows. Today, if if he or another person puts on the mask, the crows in the area, not just the original seven, gather to scold, dive, bomb and follow him. The crows don't pester people wearing other masks. So it's, you know, the, I think, yeah, we're, we're, um, we, we, we think birds are pretty, um, the whole bit about bird, bird brained, um, may not, um, 
may not apply, but geez, scrolling down, there's that couple of, it looks like a picture of some Kias there um, in New Zealand. Yep. Yep. I remember, um, I remember um, camping out in, in New Zealand um, in my student days and um, waking up in the morning and a Kia ripped apart my um, my hiking boots. <laughs> um, they found them. They like to they like to destroy stuff, don't they? But yeah, um, a really good article article for for, for people interested in um, um, function of bird brains and, and um, some of the research that has gone on with um, that, and also some very beautiful photographs in there as well and. Um, you know that's what National Geographic is known for. Um, so yeah, there's one. There's one more point that I just was interested to get your opinion out of this. Um, they talk about um, the African grey, the famous African grey, um, who had a book written about him. Um, anyway, uh, I will find his name in a moment. But um, he he was famous because he worked. He was in Irene Pepperberg's lab. It's not Griffin. It is um, Alex. Alex, of course. Um, so Alex was famous because he would use words in in context. So this is one of the things that happens to me quite often at work. I will often get asked by clients. Uh, here's my are um, any one of the large parrots, yes. and they say the right word at the right time. Even budgerigars will do this. Um, and I certainly have a couple of birds who I think uh, have an understanding of the word they're using. They're, I think there are actually birds uh, who are not just reflexly using a particular word because they get a particular response. It's not a simple um, uh, um, behavioural uh, conditioning type arrangement. They actually understand that if they use this word at this time, it means this thing. They have a, a concept in their bird brains. Did, did, have you had patients that come in like that, Brendan? Um Gee, I wish my um, clients did that, let alone the, um, the patients there. Um, yes, um, hello to any of my clients listening. Not that um, clients should be listening to this as a vet, veterinary and um, veterinary nurse technician podcast, but nevertheless, um, um, probably not. I mean, I, I must admit I don't see as many birds as I, as I used to when I try to hand off the birds to the other um, vets in the practice who are more experienced with birds than me. Um, so most of the birds that I do see um, are chickens um, or the odd um, the odd budgie or canary and those sorts of ones. But off the top of my head, no, I can't um, can't think of that. No, no. So the answer is no. <laughs> so, so, well, uh, yes. <laughs> it, 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 it would be very – it is very hard to tell, and I definitely have other patients who I have no doubt um, are simply, um, you know, responding because they get a particular reaction when they make this particular noise and they don't understand that that noise means something. But there's a couple of birds that, I, I, like you said, I, I reckon um, they are, well, maybe uh, – <laughs> Maybe as good as their clients when they come in and listen to me. <laughs> yes. So your clients actually listen to you, Mark? Are you sure about that? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, it's quite – and the, that goshawk photo. Um, 
I love those uh, birds that um, fold themselves up into a little um, package to sweep through the forest. We've got a wonderful goshawk who hassles the uh, the local birds here, and, and uh, that photo reminds me of um, of uh, that goshawk uh, sweeping through the trees and scaring the starlings and uh, and uh, uh, minor birds. Yes, some fantastic pictures on there, but. Um yeah, I encourage all our listeners to go and have a look at that article and just go to our website, vetgurus.com, and um, we'll have a link to, to that website. It's on the um, National Geographic website. Um, and just be careful that if you do view that, just read the whole article in um, without refreshing the page several times because I've just gone back to it to flick through it again and it won't let me look at it because I'm not a subscriber. So I think they only let you look at it probably five or five or ten times. Um, and if you keep refreshing your web page, you may um, not have access to it anymore. Um, so our last news story, Mark, before we get into the product review, well, which is a book review that um, we'll both talk about, is um, another bird one. I said it would be bird-related. Um and um, this one's a bit sad, and I don't know whether you've heard about this one, Mark. Um, I'll read. I'll read most of the article because it's a fairly short article, and it's from um, I think the original link is from the BBC, so bbc.com. But we will have that link in our show notes, and that is that Nigel, and his nickname is No Mates. Um, so Nigel No Mates, a lonely New Zealand gannet who lived his life on the edge of the cliffs of an uninhabited island, has been found dead alongside his partner, which is a concrete replica bird. I found this very sad. Nigel had been on Manor Island for five years and was besotted with one of the 80 decoys spread across the island um, because um, they were trying to attract gannets to this particular island and they they placed 80 of these um fake birds these 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 um i think they were um um plastic replicas um, i'm not quite sure what they were made on oh no they were made of concrete, concrete sorry concrete. i said concrete, concrete. yeah they had so Nigel was found next to his immobile concrete partner who was part of a fake colony created to help lure gadgets to Manus Island off the west coast of New Zealand's North Island. Um, and it just gets sadder and sadder. <laughs> he, he had been observed over years by volunteers who said that they were touched after witnessing him carefully constructing a nest from seaweed and twigs on the cliff edge and apparently in an act of courtship in 2013. So he became besotted with one of these concrete um, replicas there and he, he was caught in it for, for, for several years. Um, in a Facebook post on Thursday, Conservation Group's friend of Manor Island wrote that Nigel won the hearts of its members and visitors to the island. The group said that three other, only three, but three other gannets had recently arrived on the island um, since 2003, I think, um, or 2013, sorry. Um, so three other gannets that recently arrived um, as a surprise, um, but they posted a poem dedicated to the dead bird with the message, rest in peace, no mates, Nigel. Um, so, yeah, um, we hope you find the real thing um, in the afterlife um, was what they were saying. So, yeah, um, even with the recent arrival of the other gannets, Nigel's love affair may not have been for nothing. The Guardian newspaper, there we go, I think the original report was in The Guardian. Whether or not he was lonely, he certainly never got anything back um, and that must have been a very strange experience, he said. I think we all have a lot of empathy for him because he had this fairly hopeless situation. 
Um, despite the arrival of the three other gannets, Nigel apparently refused to be separated from his replica mate and his commitment was confirmed when he later died by its side. Yeah, so there we go, bird brains. He was a, a particular bird brain, wasn't he, there? He had some real-life real, real life gannets come, but he, he, um, he was a... He was a um, he was a one-person um, gannet, wasn't he? He just wanted his partner and um, nobody else. Um, but unfortunately, his partner was concrete. So there we go. Um, so that's my little quirky story for the week. Um, and, yeah, I think all of those were bird-related stories, Mark. So there, I um, hope you're happy with all of those. Um, I am, I, am, I am happy. I was um, I was taken to task at work today by one of our clients um, because um, he felt uh, um, my my photography was a little bit too bird focused so i think photography and podcast we're going to strike out a little bit and our news stories might uh involve some other species over the next little bit Brent. i'm sure they will and speaking of other species and non non avian species you have a book review for us I do indeed. A, a wonderful surprise coming back from the uh, the, um, the Fijian Isles. Um, I uh, got in a little bit early this morning and um, went to my desk and there was a beautiful cardboard box um, housing a, a, a wonderful new textbook um, that I'd been looking forward to and I thought uh, it would be a good time for us to uh, just... Um, uh, have a review of reptile medicine and surgery in clinical practice. Um, a wonderful, wonderful textbook that will be no doubt a, 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 an adornment to the bookcases of veterinarians around the world. I'm saying nothing, Mark. I'm saying nothing. My um, my score for this book, even before you've reviewed it, is um, it, it is totally um, unscorable. I cannot give it a mark. And, and the reason is, um, as you well know, I am one of the co-editors of this book. Um, and if you, um, for the listeners who end up, purchase in this excellent textbook um they will see that i'm that the, the fourth of the four editors there because i did um the least amount of work in the whole textbook um i did help um co-write a couple of the chapters as well and i see mark that you were a um an author of a particular or a co-author of the anesthesia of reptiles chapter in this text I, I, and look, I, one of the things about being a co-author um, is that um, that I'm acutely aware of the uh, the way that um, the process by which the wonderful editors um, cajoled us to produce a uh, a, a product in uh, the, the uh, outstanding Dr. Annabelle Olson um, did obviously the large part of the work and um, and. Uh, but the, the nature of the chapter that we produced was particularly focused on being clinically relevant. And uh, and I know there were, well, I don't even want to think how many emails there were, just gently pushing us to uh, um, to something that was more useful to um, people in general practice rather than those of us that are, um, you know, Love playing with reptiles all the time, um, but um, so I, and I'm I'm really fascinated to see that uh, that uh, the quartet of um, of uh, editors were able to do that across the board. Each chapter um, uh, is just um, uh, loaded with immediately clinically relevant material, just like the um, anesthesia chapter. So I was keen to ask you. Um, 
uh, a bit about the process. How, like, it's not often that um, that I get the opportunity to ask someone who is the editor of a major international uh, publication in uh, uh, reptile medicine and surgery. Uh, how, what did, how did you find the process? Was it a um, was it um, a pleasant thing? Was it a, how did it start? Did you guys just um, get together at a UPAV conference and go, let's write a book? Well, I think I think the, the 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 main instigator was the the, the primary editor, and that's um, Bob Donnelly, Robert Donnelly, and he already has um, his second edition of his um, avian medicine in clinical practice out, um, and um, I think. Um, Bob thought it would be a good idea to do a reptile version of that and um, he wanted it to be more internationally focused um, even though the four main editors are Australian based we, we, we've um, collected a, a fantastic group of um, authors for the chapters um, um, throughout um, Europe and the Americas and Australasia and Asia um, rather than um, um, you know, in the past, a lot of these textbooks tend to be focused just on one particular continent. Um, so that was that was part of the aim there, and also um, making it clinically based. Yeah, so it's it, it's a book you can pick up, and and for those who don't deal with wet reptiles that that often, it will have um, relevant practical information that's there. But yeah, the process it's it's prolonged. Yeah, um, like that <laughs> from from. The concept to the actual publication, which was um, um, the printing was January this year, so it's now just out, um, was probably two to three years. Yeah, um, so it's a it's a long period of time, um, and and we found out basically that an editor for each um, or um, was allocated to each of the twenty odd chapters, whatever they ended up being the number, and um, so we ended up having five to ten chapters each that we were the primary editor for so you'd oversee the the authors um and and yeah it's a it's a fair bit a lot of to and fro in with things and um um a, a slow process there and it, and it can be quite laborious and difficult for people who aren't used to um dealing with that as far as authors go because um um, I've sort of dealt with this sort of process before, um, being involved with um, the Australian Veterinary Journal and, and um, being one of the um, associate editors for that as well, um, probably over 20 years or so now, um, and, and seeing the process with manuscript selection. Um, and there's another topic for um, a future podcast, you know, how, how to get your paper published. We can probably do that as well. Um, so, yeah, it's a slow process and... and um, and, and very frustrating at times, both with dealing with um, um, dealing with authors and, and dealing with um, arguments between um, authors and editors, or, or just conversations, I suppose, rather than more arguments, and and also dealing with the requirements as far as the publisher as well, um, and a lot of work, you know, a lot of work. And as I say, I did the least amount of work of the three other editors there, um, but it was still a lot of work. And um, at the end of the day, you do it for the love of it because, yeah, we don't get much for it. I think we might get somewhere down the track, we might get a, a very small um, royalty check, you know, it might be something like 50 or $100, you know, once or twice a year or so, and that's all, you know, we're likely to get. And, um um, because I think the publishers end up getting most of the 
most of the um, income from it, um, considering how many hundreds of hours are put into it. But that's not what we do it for. So it's a, you know, it's an interesting. But and you have to be patient, Mark. I think with with dealing with it, and have to be willing to, especially when you have, you know, there's a one or two chapters that I had. Um, Co, um, multiple authors um, I think one there were three or four authors in in the chapter and it's trying to deal with um, debates between those four authors as well as what the requirements of the text that we want as as an editor and also the requirements as far as the formatting um, um, and the style of the text as far, um, from what the um, what the publisher wants as well so it, it can get quite tricky and even with these days of email and instant communications it still takes it you know weeks and weeks and weeks to sort out you know um, each little little problem yeah so that's why it takes so long but we're glad it's out there and yeah full disclosure disclosure we're both um i'm an editor and a co-author and mark you're an author as well but um i still think it's a good book mark yeah so what are you you giving it out of 10 oh clearly 10 (laughs) clearly well there you go the first 10 out of 10 um the first 10 10. there was two other there was two other quick things i was going to say about it brendan and i really wanted to um uh, yeah congratulate you and Deb and Bob and Robert, I think the um, I do know the effort that goes in, and I particularly know um, how difficult co-authors can be, being one of the more difficult ones to get to um, to fit in. So I understand the trouble you went through, but I think it's a really important thing to note that um, that there's the op- these are opportunities for clinicians who have an interest in spreading knowledge and uh, and. Um, bringing their experience to a greater audience. Private practice is not um, shielded from this sort of publication. This isn't something that's isolated to um, academics. Um, It's it's a, um, I think it's, I know talking to many new graduates, it's a, a thing that they aspire to in clinical practice they want to be part of the process that makes it bigger and better and and uh, um, and and raise the standard all the time. And I think um, a publication like this, which does give um, many um, experts in many fields and many clinicians in general practice who have lots of practical experience, the opportunity to express it, um, I think that's a a really outstanding thing. So congratulations to the editors, congratulations to the the, um, publishers, and, and yeah, I'll just see those royalty checks rolling in. Yeah, we might, I might be able to buy a, a coffee soon, Mark. Um, and I think <laughs> we actually just just for interest, we we had to negotiate with the publishers um, in order for every author, because I think there was probably thirty or forty authors when when you count that some chapters had two to two and up to four authors in in a chapter. Um, and we had to negotiate because it wasn't part of the original contract to make sure that every author um, received um, a free copy. And I think they're taking that off our royalties um, for all those co- <laughs> all those copies that were sent out. So yeah, you, I don't think we'll be able to retire on our on our royalties anytime soon. But as I say, it was good fun to do, a lot of work, but um, yeah, and hopefully, yeah, it it, it will will be appreciated um, and people will get some good use out of it. Yeah, so enough about um, our, our little textbook there, Mark. I think we should get on to our um, main topic this week. And the main topic is, as you may see from the um, title, Itchy and Scratchy. So 
we're just going to summarize a couple of the um, parasite, ectoparasite problems we see in small mammals. And I think you should kick it off, Mark, with a, a little chat about um, mange in, in guinea pigs, um, about um, the clinical aspects of that. What do you see and what do you treat them with and what's your thoughts on why they get it? Well, I think um, the, it's always a really interesting um, day when we get when the receptionists get a call about a, a guinea pig with epilepsy, um, and that's one of those phone calls that we can have a very high index of suspicion that first of all the guinea pig doesn't have epilepsy, um, but also that um, that. Uh, there probably is a guinea pig that has an exceptional level of pruritus, that it's just hugely itchy, and the way that it throws itself around, um, uh, that that's uh, that's the you know the 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 uncoordinated uncoordinated way these um, guinea pigs toss themselves around when they are um, searching to. Uh, relieve themselves of their itchiness um, that makes people think they are having some form of seizure um, and it is surprisingly common we do see large numbers of um, of guinea pigs that um, that uh, do have external parasite problems and are, um, are hugely itchy um, so uh, it's uh, um, often uh, a, a relatively urgent thing because it's not like they have bouts of itchiness and then they're relaxed in between times. Um, they're really um, giving themselves a, a distressing time, like all the time. Um, and so uh, it is something that we try and get into the hospital, get those animals into the hospital as quickly as possible. Um, and we look to... Uh, um, at least start um, some form of uh, relief um, and treatment to see if we can't uh, uh, get those um, those guinea pigs feeling much better relatively quickly. Um, so uh, the the there are it's the most common uh, uh, parasite that um, we uh, find on them. We find a bunch of different ones. We certainly have had um, guinea pigs that have uh, um, fleas. Uh, we definitely see um, guinea pigs that have um, uh, um, lice uh, and fermites. But um, uh, the uh, the most common uh, problem animal is a sarcoptiform mite, um, uh, Trixacaris cavii, and uh, and. And that uh, sarcoptiform mite um, just um, drives the guinea pigs wild and requires relatively urgent treatment. I do think that um, uh, I'll be interested in your opinion on this, Brendan. But I, uh, I'm, I think this is um, not a simple matter of just immediate exposure and then uh, the guinea pigs are itchy. I think it's much more complex than that, and um, and I think there's a role to play in uh, um, in particularly vitamin C and in general nutrition we find uh, plays an important role in, um, in whether animals will be susceptible to um, the, uh, the, the itchiness that arises from infestation with this mite. Is that your experience? Absolutely. I think we, we tend to see two syndromes of it. Um, a guinea pig that uh, is, a, is a young guinea pig um, purchased from a breeder or a pet shop goes home and um, shortly afterwards it, it, get, it becomes very itchy and pruritic and may have those little um, seizure type episodes that you mentioned. Um, 
and the other extreme is a guinea pig and it may be a guinea pig that's been on its own for its whole life um, no exposure to other guinea pigs it was purchased as a young guinea pig and then when it gets into its latter years and it becomes aged um, it develops full-blown um, mange um, and I think the thoughts are that the, both those situations are, 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 are related to stress or immunocompromised so the older guinea pig it's one that's that's getting old, its immune system starting to pack up and it had those mange mite on its skin um, or in its skin um, for the whole period it was um, kept um, and the immune system was keeping those mites at bay. But once um, its immune system becomes compromised or, or it develops some other old guinea pig disease um, or any other disease process, then the, the mange flares up um, or becomes apparent. Um, and same too with those young ones that go home and and, um, um, and, and get mange shortly after it. Um, a client's acquired those um, guinea pigs for the first time. Um, and I think what's happening there is they're very stressed guinea pigs. Um, so they've been in the pet shop stressed out a little bit, been handled all the time. Um, then they go home to a new environment they're stressed out again and all the kids and the family want to handle them all the time so they stress out more and then um and the mange that's sitting there um flares up so my thoughts with these are that it's a it's the canary in the coal mine bit so you just think um is if a guinea pig has has clinical mange then what else is wrong with this guinea pig why is its immune system um not working properly or why is that guinea pig stressed? Because the good news is the guinea pig, uh, the treatment of that mange is, is quite straightforward um, in, in most cases, providing some you know, anti-inflammatory pain relief, um, plus or minus um, washes at some stage um, um, once they're not too itchy. Um, possibly secondary um, um, if they've got a severe bacterial skin infection as well you may cover them um, and a parasiticide um, to treat the mange um, or to knock the numbers back down to normal levels and clean in the environment and most of them respond fantastically um, to the treatment um, but I always think what else is wrong with this guinea pig um, is is that sort of answer your um question or your or your your thoughts on it do you have a similar sort of aspect or, or feeling about these cases yeah precisely the same the the um uh one of the um avamectins or uh um, revolution is usually the sort of treatment that we apply to them and they do we only occasionally have um an animal that um you know doesn't go well immediately and and just as you said it we've they all will have some underlying stress, and if they don't uh, respond well to the treatment, then we better, it's going to be a sort of uh, um, immune-suppressing stress that isn't going away, and we've got to investigate that and find out what it is. Um, so uh, it is a, a pleasing condition to be able to treat because most of them get well, um, but it, as you said, it's a, a signpost for other underlying problems, and so it's important to identify those so that we don't get recurrences. Yep, exactly. And it, it definitely is quite distressing for the clients who, who, who ring up and say, my, my guinea pig has epilepsy. Um, and the first thing you need to think is that guinea pig's almost certainly got um, mange. Um, so it's very important to, to, to key up your, your reception staff um, about, about these particular phone calls because it, it will happen. Um, 
and get them in and, and assess that guinea pig. The next condition, well, it's sort of related in a way, isn't it, as, as, as far as the underlying um, aspects of it, and that is the rabbit fermites. Um, so, yeah, I'll, I'll hand over to you again, but you can give you uh, – so maybe if we contrast rabbit fermites um, to the guinea pig mange, um, what are the clinical signs of the rabbit fermite um, infestations? Well, the and I'm I'm so glad that you gave me so long to prepare for these. <laughs> um, the uh, the rabbit um, fermites once again a, a, a very common thing for us to see in um, in uh, practice. I know that the name of this particular parasite's changed several times, but I've always um, well most recently it's uh, is it Shalatella. Um, Parasitovorax, is that the most yes. recent name? Um, and so uh, um, the, the outstanding clinical sign um, that is, the, uh, is that um, dandruff, that scaly dandruff that uh, the rabbits that have this skin parasite um, uh, demonstrate. Um, and it's often most apparent in single rabbits. I think the, the aloe grooming that occurs in small groups of rabbits will uh, limit the the, probably both the total number of fermites and the um, and the clinic the main clinical sign you see that uh, walking dandruff sometimes it's referred to um, uh, um, as the uh, um, as many clients will come in and tell us they've found uh, walking walking dandruff uh, on their uh, rabbit um, and, and and it's probably a uh, um, a it's, in contrasting it with our um, the external parasite problem that guinea pigs have, it often is not as profoundly uh, pruritic. The the um, rabbits will often have a significant amount of uh, white scaly dandruff, particularly over the the uh, dorsal surface. Um, and uh, a lone rabbit which can't quite reach that area over its shoulders is often the the um the first spot that it's seen, um, and um and these rabbits don't tend to be um particularly uh, pruritic. Um, they they just have this um a little bit of hair loss and spots and um and uh, uh um and the dandruff. Um, it is similarly though one of those pleasing conditions that um that uh, responds uh, really well to treatment. Um, it's uh. I think the same, but certainly uh, it's interesting to talk about the predisposing factors with guinea pigs. I think uh, our experience with guinea pig mites is that we we do find many more, you know, those particularly those old guinea pigs, that they have serious co-concurrent health issues. Whereas often with these rabbits, um, I, I, they, they, we're always on the lookout for them, but uh, it's not always associated with significant um, other disease. And I think that grooming from other rabbits um, is something that um, that really uh, plays a, a significant role in the extent of of uh, um, how this disease develops. Yeah, I think the key the key points there that you've highlighted um, well are the um, are the fact that the rabbits tend not to be pruritic they tend not to be itchy with it compared with the guinea pigs are incredibly pruritic and they go into those little seizures yeah um and the thoughts are with the rabbits with that fermite that it is probably commensal in most rabbits it's just sitting there and 
again we think what is wrong with that rabbit if it has a clinical case of the of the walking dandruff um you know what else is going on with that particular rabbit although it may have been like that for months and months in some of the rabbits and it's not really causing too much um underlying health issues with that rabbit but i'd still consider you know is there something else happening with that particular rabbit i think you're about to say something there mark jump in or not um, Oh, you know, I was just thinking that um, that uh, when I reflect across uh, some of our recent cases, I think um, uh, arthritis has been a, um, a significant um, finding in a number of them. And I think um, both, you know, obviously um, that pain is going to be immunosuppressive, but I also think the the animals can't move and groom as well. And, um, and so that uh, changes the, the ecology on their skin and, and allows these... Um, these uh, um, external parasites to um, flourish and take over. Yeah. Um, and I'll tell you what, um, musculoskeletal problems in rabbits as they get older, I think is vastly underreported. Um, and uh, Und- underreported, underidentified, and definitely undertreated. Yes, I agree totally with that. There you go. There's another topic, musculoskeletal conditions in small mammals or, or rabbits in particular, and our, our approach to those cases we'll cover in another podcast, I think. Um, we're just about run out of time, but we'll just do a couple of other quick uh, little ectoparasites in um, these small mammals. Um, I was going to talk about flea allergy dermatitis in rabbits because we certainly see a reasonable number of them in, in my practice. Um, and fly strike. Um, do you see many fly struck rabbits with maggots um, around their backside? It, it is unfortunately something that we see quite regularly. The the uh, nature of our um, local um, weather climate um, here in Newcastle, just on the coast, um, it's nice and moist, and uh, and um, there's uh, large numbers of blowflies in our local bush, and uh, and certainly any rabbit. And once again, talking about musculoskeletal problems, any rabbit that can't adequately um, groom the perineum and so uh, ends up soiling that area and particularly if the the uh, the fur around the perineum is stained with urine as well then they will very often um, become uh, uh, fly struck and uh, and it's a it's a disaster um, we we certainly um, in other species we find um, you know we, we will often uh, because of the same circumstances um, some dogs will come in and uh, um, and uh, be suffering um, maggots infesting various wounds, but those uh, uh, the dogs just seem to be much more resilient, um, and so we have a, a decent chance to to bride those wounds and, um, and remove the the uh, fly larvae, um, and uh, and the dogs will go on to do pretty well. But our experience with rabbits is that um, the the uh, for a variety of reasons, I expect toxins associated with um, the feeding um, maggots um, that they're much, much more metabolically fragile, and uh, and they can be very difficult cases to deal with. Brendan, yep, they're um, yeah, I really worry about those rabbits that are that are fly struck and um, they're they're on edge, um, trying to die. Um, I think with that, and whether there's some sort of toxic. 
syndrome that happens with them, even with only a few maggots um, on them, I think that they're, they're, they're seriously ill, if not critically ill. So you need to get in there and, and, and treat them pretty aggressively and, and also give them lots of supportive care. Um, they're, they're pretty nasty, those ones. So yeah, it's not much, not much fun dealing with those. Um, we, we were, uh, we're over an hour already, Mark. We've done it again. Um, I think we should briefly, I wanted to talk about one other, um, itchy mammal problem um, and get your opinion on it again i've given you lots of um lots of time to think about this one and that is the um the rats and mice in particular the mice um that are ripping themselves to pieces and scratching themselves to pieces so um um, and I'm sure you've seen them. These these mice and rats. Um, I, I tend to see it more in the mice that have have just scratched themselves so severely that they've almost scratched off their ears um, and and their face, and they've got these horribly open ulcerated wounds over over all their 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 head neck region, but sometimes over the rest of their body as well. Do you see them, and, and what do you do about them? Well, we definitely see them and we often end up, you know, with tears in our eyes worrying about them. They're um, frustrating cases and, uh, and, um, and, and you do have to, you know, start by communicating how difficult it is going to be to treat them. Um, I, we, I, I, think, um, I think that you may have, in fact, been the person that suggested this to me and we've done it a number of times with, uh, with these uh, mice. The... The, the extreme itchiness that they... When, when I first saw these mice, I thought the extreme itchiness they feel has to have something to do with some sort of, you know, huge allergic reaction or some parasite problem. Um, but I, I've increasingly over the years come to the conclusion that, uh, that mice get uh, um, hugely itchy from their pyoderma. They often um, just simply have complicated skin infections um, that are hugely itchy to them and they just maintain them by traumatising the skin repeatedly. And working on that theory, um, we uh, obviously treat them with um, antibiotics guided by um, uh, um, culture and sensitivity or impression smears and gram stains. Um, but, um, but we try to set up some form of... Um, you know, body bandage, um, body cast, um, something that um, uh, for a short period of time at least allows us to prevent the the um, mice from actually uh, having a scratch at themselves. And we've had um, some some success where, um, where if we can keep them from having a go at themselves and maintaining the problem, um, then we can get some of these mice over a hurdle and uh, and they get better. I do worry about, you know, quality of life issues. If we're going to literally encase them in some form of body armour to prevent them from uh, having a go at themselves, if we're going to um, carefully uh, uh, trim the claws, which, uh, you know, as anyone who's had a mouse crawl over them will know, their their sharp little claws uh, have no trouble um, slicing up their own skin as well as ours. So, um, if we're going to do those things, then we need to be uh, very conscious of what we're asking the mice to go through, and and uh, and certainly manage them with analgesics and um, and uh, uh, 
um, and even sometimes sedatives to to help them get through that week or ten days where we've got them boxed up and unable to have a go at themselves. Um, do I remember this correctly? Did you were you the one who initially put me on to this treatment strategy? Oh, I can't remember, Mark. So I can't claim um, claim um, fame for that. It may have been, but uh, I mean, I find them incredibly frustrating as well, and I hit them with everything. Um, yeah, pain, pain, lots of pain relief as well. And I'll tell you what, I was just thinking of then. Um, um, I'm surprised you haven't tried tramadol in them. Uh, not, not sorry, not, sorry, sorry, not tramadol, no. trazodone. Mm. Trazodone. I haven't mm-hmm. tried trazodone yet in them, so um, there's there's one for me to report on in the, the next few weeks. But, um, yeah, I, 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 I've tried tramadol as well as um, um, even even some opiates um, as well as non-steroidals or, or even just cortisone. Um, some of them seem to respond to cortisone better than non-steroidals. I don't know whether you've had that experience. Um, and, yeah, hitting them hard with, with antibiotics as well when we've got those open sort of wounds there. But my success rate is a lot less than my failure rate with these ones and a large percentage of them I end up um, suggesting euthanasia might be the kindest thing to do even very early on with them especially in the mice yeah so I um yeah I don't I, I don't like them coming in that then they're, they're not much fun to deal with yeah so itchy mice and itchy rats so um well there's lots of other other itchy topics i'd like to chat about as well mark um in small mammals but i think we're going to have to cover it in another time because um i think the outro guys come in so thanks for listening and we'll um, talk to you all next week thanks for listening to the vet podcast by the vet gurus Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.